I'm Michael Goldfarb, and this is British Jihad Inside Out. It is one of the mysteries of contemporary British life. How did Britain become an important staging post in global jihad? It's a mystery played out at regular intervals in the headlines. The crash site in Pennsylvania of United Airlines Flight 93. Unlike the other three planes on September the 11th, it was seized by four terrorists rather than five. The FBI believes that Zacharias Mazawi could have been the so-called 20th hijacker. The 33-year-old French Moroccan spent much of the last nine years living in London, but arrived in the United States. The judge read out the charge paper. found to have explosives hidden in his shoes. Reed traveled on a British passport. Disturbingly, Today I'm announcing a grand jury's indictment of Ahmed Omar Saeed Sheikh, a British citizen currently in custody of Pakistani authorities. Saeed is charged with the kidnapping and murder of Daniel Pearl. And do we know if there are any links with the ricin operation? The police have said that the arrest was carried out by officers, part of the anti-terrorist branch, who are currently involved in the investigation of the finding of the poison ricin at a flat in North London earlier in the month. Tonight, Sajid Bakat faces serious questioning under the Terrorism Act. Friends say he's highly intelligent. He's also attended the Islamic College in Blackburn, training to be an Islamic priest. So far, police have removed a small amount of explosives, along with computer equipment and documents. Speculation that they found a shoe bomb or plans for an attack on a football stadium have been categorically denied. A Friday night in London's Bethnal Green, a heterogeneous neighborhood of working class cockneys, young media types, and immigrants, mostly Muslim, from South Asia and Africa. In an old Unitarian church hall, an energetic group of young men is preparing the room for a meeting. Rows of chairs are being neatly laid out. A couple of fellows take a cloth and cover a painting of Christ saving the woman taken in adultery. The woman is depicted nude. This evening's gathering is sponsored by Al-Muhajirun, one of Britain's most prominent radical Islamist groups. Al-Muhajirun, it means the emigrants, was set up 20 years ago in Saudi Arabia by the evening's featured speaker, Sheikh Omar Bakri. It is dedicated to re-establishing the Caliphate, a single state for all the world's Muslims. Sheikh Omar is a little late, so a young acolyte, Abu Muwahid, begins the lecture. We should be speaking about the Islamic State, how one day again the Muslims will regain the control of the earth. And this time around when we conquer the world, it will not just be the East and the West, but also the North and the South. The subject tonight is Tawheed, the central tenet of Wahhabi Islamic teaching. The Wahhabi view of Tawheed demands that any Muslim put his allegiance to Islam above any other claims society may make on him. Tawheed is to give up the way of life of the disbelievers. It means that you give up democracy. It means you give up liberalism and freedom. Any system of life, any law and order, we must reject and disbelieve in. It's not just Western ideas that are dismissed. The tenets of Tawheed heap scorn on people who are not believers in Islam. That is why we always like to say the Jews and the Christians 
and the Hindus and the Sikhs, they like to dream about paradise. Honestly, if you ask any Christian or any Jew, or any atheist, a homosexual socialist for example, they dream to go to paradise. And in fact, they believe they are going to go to paradise. More than any Muslim, in fact. And they believe the Muslims are going to go to hellfire. SubhanAllah. Look who's speaking. People have drifted in during Abu Mawahid's remarks. Around 60 men sit down in the front. Around 30 women and children are in the back as the young preacher finishes up and introduces the main event. And now we have somebody, inshallah, who will be able to explain Tawheed far better than I can, inshallah. Leaning on a walking stick, Sheikh Omar Bakri, a portly man dressed in a white dish dasha, the ankle-length Arab shirt, slowly makes his way towards a table at the front of the room and, just as slowly, gets down to the substance of the evening's lecture, the role of suicide attacks in Islam. People like to call it suicide bombing. We call it self-sacrifice operation. Bakri is a Syrian-born Islamic scholar and Sharia judge. He was educated from the age of five exclusively in madrasas, Islamic schools. He leads the group through a Quranic exegesis in English and Arabic about death. You can die in many ways, but even on a suicide mission, the cause of death is Allah. Self-sacrifice operation, suicide bombing, call whatever you want to call it. The cause of death. commit self-sacrifice operation, attempt, but God did not accept them. They tried to open the bomb, all right, or the explosive did not blow, all blow, but he survived because God decided it's not your time yet. Video cameras record the talk for sale at Muslim bookshops around Britain. Some cameras are attached to computers and stream the Sheikh's address out onto the web. That's why they always ask him, what do you think about the magnificent 19 who fly very high with style and hit the Twin Towers? Do you condemn? Do you condone? I'm a Muslim. My views, I have no views. Tell me to have a views. I'm subservient. I'm a slave. The slave has no opinion. The slave only has the opinion of his own master. And there's no master for the earth and for the mankind and for any existence but Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Bakri winds up for the big finish. People heard what George Bush want to say. People heard what Tony Blair want to say. People heard what Kofi Annan want to say. People hearing every day all the leaders and the armies and the corrupted. But nobody want to hear what Almighty God Allah he want to say. No one has the right to legislate but Almighty Allah. Therefore, we say, let man-made law go to hell. And in fact, if you follow man-made law, it is the way to hell. To listen to Omar Bakri for an hour is to have your belief in free speech challenged to the limit. Indeed, that seems to be his intent. In a quiet room after the talk, Sheikh Omar Bakri cheerfully admits that if he spoke this way about the Assad government in his native Syria, or the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia, he would be thrown into prison and tortured. 
Indeed, really, there's no doubt about it. In Syria, I will be arrested. Even in Saudi Arabia, they deport me. Here, I speak out publicly. And you have your own religion, which is to believe in freedom and democracy. I do benefit from that, no doubt about it. But I don't give it any legitimacy. Now, if you are going to stop me, ideologically, you have been defeated because you don't practice what you preach, and that's what I want to prove. It is really catch-22. Omar Bakri arrived in Britain in 1986 after being deported from Saudi Arabia for his al-Muhajirun activities. He applied for political asylum and was given exceptional leave to stay in the country indefinitely. He set up other radical groups and claims to work as a judge on the Sharia court, a court that provides a parallel judicial system for those British Muslims who do buy the Wahhabi teachings about not submitting to man-made laws. Today, Sheikh Omar is a stateless person. Despite his nearly two decades in the United Kingdom, he has never been granted citizenship. He holds no passport. He has not been a quiet guest. His love of the limelight has made him a target of outrage from all quarters. I think his influence is pernicious, dangerous, and probably seditious. Patrick Mercer, Conservative Member of Parliament and his party's spokesman on Homeland Security. He treads a very, very, very... Uh, close line in terms of whether he's legal or illegal. The politician in me says this man is absolutely out of order and he must be locked up or got rid of. The former intelligence officer in me says actually this man is extremely useful because whilst he is on the surface and whilst he is broadcasting we have some ideas of what he's up to, we can see who his associates are and of course we can keep a track of him. So I think there are two sides to this particular coin. The presence of radical Islamic preachers like Omar Bakri and his former associate, Abu Hamza, who is currently fighting extradition to the United States, is a relatively recent phenomenon in the British Muslim community, a community whose modern roots go back to the decade just after World War II. Britain, like all the other Western European economies, needed cheap labor, and people came from all over the world, mainly from the British Commonwealth. Tariq Maudud, professor of sociology at Bristol University. The Muslims were primarily people from the Indian subcontinent or South Asian subcontinent, and they were mainly men, young men willing to work in factories. According to Maudud, the unique factor about these Muslims is that unlike other immigrant groups, they came alone, without their families. The majority of men who came in the 1950s and 60s did not see themselves as immigrants. They had no intention of settling in, in Britain. They came in order to earn what to them were large sums of money and by British standards were, you know, the lowest wages. They wanted to save that money and take it back to Pakistan and India where their savings would help to transform their family circumstances. And so they lived in the cheapest parts of British cities. There was very little integration taking place. There was very little incentive even to learn the English language. By the early 1970s, though, it became apparent that they would be staying. And it wasn't until then that they began to bring their families to Britain. So integration was a prolonged process. The young South Asians that we see, say, in colleges today, they're not third generation, they're second generation. Mm. They're the people who either came to Britain very young and went through British schools, or people who were born in Britain and went through British schools, but they're really the first generation brought up entirely in Britain. 
And this generation grew to maturity as their religion was going through radical change. When we come back, a look at the effect the generation gap in the British Muslim community has in leading youngsters towards violent Islam. When U.S. forces swept through Afghanistan, among the foreign fighters they detained and shipped to Guantanamo Bay were a number of British Muslims. Among the detainees are five British nationals. The mother of one is threatening legal action against the government here unless officials press for improved treatment. It's not known whether the Britons are among those refused. After much pressure from the British government, some of the men were released. But the U.S. is keeping Moazam Beg in custody. Hello, Meg is speaking. Hello, Hattie. In Birmingham, Moazam's father, Azmat Beg, is trying to hold things together for his family. Fielding questions from the press, keeping pressure on the Red Cross for news of his son, and speaking daily with Moazam's wife, trying to reassure her that her husband will come home safely. Yes, I know what you're going through. It's not that I'm, I do not know. I know each and everything. Azmat Beg also sees it as a mystery how a middle-class, well-educated man like his son embarked on a journey that ended up in Camp Delta. The Beg family has long been assimilated into Western ways. When Azmat brought his family to Birmingham from India via Pakistan, they moved into a neighborhood with immigrants from an earlier migration, Jews. Moazam attended a state school that was primarily Jewish. He was studying law at university when the big change occurred. He dropped out, got married, and started a small business, a religious bookshop. That didn't entirely surprise his father. Moazam was a bit uh, towards um, uh, prayers and all that. He had a little beard and all that. But he was very, very much towards uh, religion, uh, offering prayers and all that. In 2000, Moazam's bookshop was raided by Britain's special branch police. Their interest peaked by Moazam's alleged contacts with known jihadists. No charges were brought against him, and the shop reopened. Then, Moazam announced that he was taking his family to Afghanistan. He and his wife were going to open a school. Now, it isn't uncommon for young British Muslims, like young British Christians, to go abroad and do relief work. For example, Muslim aid agencies organized programs in Kosovo. But it is unusual for a family to go off on its own and do relief work independently. This concerned Moazam's father, Azmat Beg. I opposed it. I said that part of uh, the world is not right for people who have been born and brought up here. <coughs> you will face a lot of difficulties, a lot of problems. But he, he said, uh, I'm, I'm doing something very good to us, their, their, their future, and they will remember what I'm going to do for them. Then September 11th happened, and the armies of the U.S. and its allies began to mass around Afghanistan. Moazam sent his family over the border to Pakistan's capital, Islamabad. He followed shortly thereafter. Throughout this time, he was in constant touch with his family back in Britain. His father pleaded with him to return home. The elder beg tells the story in the rueful tone that comes when a parent realizes, no matter what you do, your children will make their own mistakes. So I said, well, you're a grown up person. You should know what, uh, what you're doing. But I think uh, you better come back. Uh, and he said, all right, I'll see. And then... After a week, I received a telephone call uh, saying that, Dad, I've been arrested. 
I thought he was joking. I said, arrested by whom? He said, oh, I've been arrested by two Americans, assisted by two Pakistan soldiers. I said, what for? He said, they didn't tell me anything. I'm practically being kidnapped. I said, okay. I said, uh, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to provide any help or what? He said, well, take care of my wife and children. And uh, I said, I haven't done anything. I'll, I'll come back in a week. But uh, he didn't come. Mawazam was held first in Kandahar, then in a small cell in a hangar at Bagram Air Base near Kabul. After a year in Afghanistan, he was transferred to Guantanamo Bay. Although officially no information about the charges against him have been made public, a report in Newsweek magazine claims Mawazam has confessed to leading a plot to use a drone airplane to spray the Houses of Parliament with anthrax. His father dismisses the story as far-fetched. Asmat Beg wants to see and hear the evidence against his son, and in light of the recent Supreme Court ruling authorizing Guantanamo detainees access to civilian lawyers, he may soon find out. But he is very skeptical about his son's involvement in any kind of al-Qaeda-linked activity. Beg thinks reports of British Muslim involvement in Islamic terrorism are exaggerated. There is a lot of uh, noise about terrorism here in this country, but I don't feel uh, that there is any terrorism in this country. I do not know about very younger generation because I do not have contact with very younger generation. But this profound generational difference finds a keen expression in Islam. Bristol University professor Tariq Maudud says the generation born in Britain has a different sense of what it means to be Muslim. They also think of themselves as Muslims in a more dramatic or foregrounded way. Their parents, of course, think of themselves as Muslims, but their parents think of themselves as, well, we're Pakistanis, and of course Pakistanis are Muslims, therefore we're Muslims. And they do practice their religion, of course, the, the rates of observance are very high amongst uh, older people, but they practice what one would have to call a customary Islam or a folk Islam. They have uh, ways of, of worshipping and cultural customs which really are part of rural Pakistan rather than something derived from the Quran. Whereas many of their children, I won't say all by any means, but many of their children and in particular their educated children are reading the Quran for themselves, usually in English, and are saying, hang on a minute, you told us all kinds of things is what a good Muslim does, but where does it say that in the Quran? This means that many young British Muslims are looking further afield for their questions to be answered, and they are finding the answers with teachers from a more recently arrived group, Arabs seeking political asylum. This mix between South Asian manpower and Middle Eastern politics allowed that combination to take place in Britain and especially in London. Because before, Pakistanis were interested in what India was doing. They were interested in things like Kashmir. Now, of course, it's all to do with the worldwide jihad. Syrian-born Sheikh Omar Bakri, deported from Saudi Arabia, has a sharp religious political sensibility. He preaches to second-generation South Asians who feel estranged from their parents' practice of Islam. Another evening, another Omar Bakri lecture, it's just after evening prayers at the Woolwich Mosque on the southeastern outskirts of London. While their teacher lectured upstairs, 
three of Omar Bakri's young acolytes spoke about what drew them to the sheikh. There was a lack of void. Abu Ibrahim was studying chemistry at university when he began to move towards a more devout Islam than practiced in his home. I was chasing for information. I was into classical music and all the arts and so on. And it just wasn't you know, enough for me. And then one day I just picked up a book on Islam and then decided I wanted to pray, I wanted to fast, just a compulsion within me. And then alhamdulillah one day heard about this uh, conference in North London Finsbury Park, a towering day in history, the September 11th. Well, that conference enticed me because I thought, here's people speaking out what a lot of Muslims feel. And no one's brave enough to say in the media. The way the Sheikh explains Islam is a very, you know, he's one of the few people in the world that actually speak the truth. Dublin-born Khalid Kelly. A lot of people have sold out the religion and they've compromised. You, you, you hear the Sheikh talking about the Muslim Council of Britain. They say you can vote for man-made law in this country, which takes you outside the fold of Islam. It's a very serious issue. So the Sheikh, I find, speaks the truth that's in the Quran and what the Prophet Muhammad said. And you can always tell when somebody is speaking the truth because they're always attacked. Because when you speak the truth in a world full of lies, it tends to stand out. Khalid Kelly, a nurse, converted to Islam while working in Saudi Arabia. His companions, Abu Mawahid, the opening speaker from a few nights before, and Abu Ibrahim, a project manager for a construction firm, come to Al-Mahajaroon from a more traditional background. Abu Ibrahim explains they are the sons of immigrants from Pakistan and Bangladesh. I would say with my family, it's uh, what you would consider a moderate level of practicing, where uh, Islam was mar marginalized with regards to praying in the mosque and, and the home, and really fasting when the Ramadan came. More of the same uh, from the Abu Ibrahim. Uh, my parents obviously came here, like many, many people who came from abroad, from the Asian subcontinent, or from any other third world countries, but they came here for economic reasons. So yeah, we come sort of like our parents, and our families are more of a secular, from a secular background. Like Abu Ibrahim, Abu Mawahid found his way to the Sheikh when a friend took him to the Finsbury Park Mosque in North London. The mosque was the nexus of Islamic radical activity in Britain. Anti-terrorist branch officers arrested Sheikh Abu Hamza al-Masri and two other men in coordinated raids in West London early this morning. Abu Hamza is an Egyptian-born fundamentalist. He's now a prominent Islamic activist who preaches at the Finsbury Park Mosque in North London. Anyone turning up to worship at the mosque today is being turned away. The doors firmly shut as the police search inside. Seven men were arrested at two in the morning by armed police using ladders and battering rams. The operation linked to the discovery of ricin in a North London flat earlier this month. It's also believed that some of those arrested in the initial ricin incident may have spent time at that particular mosque. Others we know who have spent time there are the alleged shoe bomber Richard Reed, Zacharias Musawi, who's been charged in connection with the September the 11th attacks, and Feroz Abasi, who's currently being held in Guantanamo Bay. It has a strong North Guantanamo detainee Mawazam Beg is also alleged to have had contact with the leadership at Finsbury Park. But Abu Mawahid says his support of jihad has nothing to do with contacts he made at that mosque. Again, that is not related to Finsbury Park Mosque, that's related to Islam. People have the right to defend their life and their sanctity because we're, we're being attacked across the world here. The Muslims are the victims here, not the, not the Americans or the British, regardless if they've lost 2,000 in, in just only two towers. We've lost millions in not just two towers, in, in cities across the world. So absolutely, the Muslims are obliged to fight jihad, verbally, physically or financially, whatever we are capable of doing. I find it really strange that you're asking me this question. I find it really strange that you're asking me what caused me to go and defend my brothers and sisters in Islam when there's kids, children, babies being slaughtered. 
And I find it even stranger that if I was a British soldier, you wouldn't ask me the same question. You wouldn't well, say, actually, why, do you, why do you feel the call to go and fight well, people abroad? But I mean, I could ask you, why don't you go to Algeria and stop Muslims from killing one another? Those who are killing Muslims are not Muslims in the first place. They're apostates. Yeah, exactly. So we can't really consider them to be Muslims anyway. And then there is the law and order that permits that in the first place. The law and order are do- uh, across the world are those who are abiding to the United Nations. So I think we should blame the United Nations, if anything. Clearly, these young men have got the message. But the message has moved out of the mosque into music videos, cursing the kafar, unbelievers. But God said, kill in the way of God those enemies and seek to be killed for my sake. I will grant you something called shahad. You become martyr. Martyrdom is what you want. Do the effort. Clean your intention. Go forward, never look backwards. Make sure you have nothing left behind you to think about or to cry for and fight in the name of Allah. The moment where this tough talk crosses over into a commitment to action is a key to the mystery. But it's impossible to document the role of the sheikh and other radical preachers in taking acolytes over the threshold from theory into action. Bakri claims not to actively recruit people for jihad. Many of my students, they went abroad and some of them martyred, some of them passed away. May God accept them all as a martyr. I never know about their own mission, obviously, but I'm proud of them. Some of them fight in Bosnia, some of them fight in Zeshnia, some of them went to Kosovo and Albania, some of them went to Kashmir. Some of them even, they was fighting in Afghanistan and now some of them in Iraq, some of them in Palestine. So I'm, I'm aware about that. But these people never go there because they are my students. Now, if any one of them, he did that type of operation, I'd be proud of him. But I cannot be held responsible for him. But he can't be surprised that some students join the global jihad after listening to him. One young man, Omar Sharif, who attended Bakri's lectures in the Midland city of Derby, went to Israel and was involved in a suicide attack on a Tel Aviv nightclub. Bakri disavows any responsibility for the act. When Omar Sharif went from Derby, I was surprised because I did not know about him. He went, you know, to Palestine, and uh, I, I was surprised myself to see him in TV. That's why... Despite the fact I was so happy that he had that, that zeal and that in good intention, but if he told me, maybe I would advise him something different. The teachings of Sheikh Omar and other radical teachers, including Abu Hamza, divide the British Muslim community as much as they offend the rest of the country. Sadiq Khan is a lawyer who represents two British Muslims accused of plotting a ricin attack on the London Underground. He also works with the mainstream Muslim Council of Britain. Sadiq Khan says critics need a sense of perspective when talking about the radical preachers. Uh, we need to appreciate the balance that's struck between a freedom of expression and of speech. And the reality is there is nothing unlawful about people preaching whatever they wish, as long as they don't incite others to commit criminal offenses, for there to be racial hatred or religious hatred. Khan claims that the media's focus on Bakri's rabble-rousing obscures a more important point about the sheikh's influence. 
The real point is this, the number of people who follow the teachings of Al-Mahajirin or other Islamic groups of the like are very small. They are a minority. A minority of a minority. There are around 1.8 million Muslims in Britain. Perhaps a million live in London. No more than a hundred were in the hall the night I attended Omar Bakri's lecture. Overreacting to radical preachers like Sheikh Omar has led the British government down the wrong path, according to lawyer Sadiq Khan. The danger happens when the authorities uh, and the media and the mainstream public assume that all Muslims are like that, or assume that all preachers are like that. And that's what the real lessons to be learned of these figures are. What's quite clear is that authorities are, are arresting willy-nilly anybody who is a visible Muslim. Mistakes certainly have been made, most recently this spring. The ten people arrested yesterday, nine men and one woman, are still being questioned. As people in Manchester awoke to newspaper headlines describing the possible targets of a terrorist attack, the police continued their efforts. At the time, police suggested they were investigating an alleged plot to bomb uh, a major Greater Manchester landmark. There was speculation that it might be Old Trafford or it might be a shopping centre. Um, but that doesn't seem to have happened. Uh, and as you say, the 10 have been released. I suppose these things happen, but uh, there's no way of describing this as a successful operation. In Britain, those suspected of terrorist activities can be arrested and held for seven days before being charged. In the almost three years since the World Trade Center attack, around 550 British Muslims have been detained under anti-terrorism laws. Ninety-four were actually charged with a crime. Only six have been convicted. Sadiq Khan says those figures show the police are simply detaining people with little evidence and hoping to make something happen while they're in custody. Simple stops and searches of Asians under new anti-terrorism laws tripled in the last year. In Khan's view, this leads to further alienation of the Muslim community from the authorities. Four young Muslim men, all British citizens, born and raised in this country, were arrested in the middle of the night uh, by the authorities. They had their front door smashed in. The neighbours saw all this uh, and were quite frightened. Four men were taken away to separate police stations. Lo and behold, six and a half days later, uh, literally half an hour before the, the men were due to have either been charged or released, they were released without charge. Uh, and all these four men now have family members, neighbours, members of the community who now distrust the police, which is worrying. British authorities have been down this path before. For 30 years, British governments of the right and the left had to evolve strategies to deal with the IRA. Initially, the British authorities handled Irish Republican terrorism the way the Bush administration has dealt with terrorism post 9-11. Suspected IRA men were subject to indefinite internment in prison and secret trials. But the resentment this bred in the Catholic community of Northern Ireland simply created more recruits for the IRA. So the British government evolved a more subtle counter-terrorism strategy based on surveillance and penetration of the group. But the situation with radical British Muslims is different. It comes down to the mass casualty threat. Jonathan Stevenson, author of We Wrecked the Place, a book about Northern Ireland, and currently a fellow of London's International Institute for Strategic Studies. If they were tracking an IRA suspect, they were worried perhaps he'd commit an act that would kill 10 people. But that was actually an acceptable risk in the interest of getting more intelligence. Now there is the possibility that a terrorist would engage in some act that, that could kill in the hundreds or thousands rather than just in the dozens. So there has to be a greater premium 
on rolling that person up mm -hmm. and essentially denying him the physical opportunity to commit a terrorist act. Mm -hmm. Stevenson notes that Irish terrorism was aimed at a local political grievance for which there was ultimately a negotiated solution. Islamic terrorism is about what he calls a universal set of Muslim grievances that have no local political solution in Britain. But more than half of British Muslims were born in Britain. So how has this universal set of grievances come to occupy such a prominent part in local Muslim life? The British Muslim population is particularly insular and I think uh, relatively unassimilated and unintegrated. The British class structure reinforces it. Most British Muslims are from the Diabandi sect, which historically was actually intended to be insular because it originated in India, where it was surrounded by non-Muslim groups and sought to maintain Muslim ways by fairly strict adherence to religious standards and rights. And, you know, I think there's a social marginalization problem in Britain. But social marginalization is only part of the answer to why radical Islam appeals to young British Muslims. When we come back, the argument raging within the Muslim community over the true form of Islam. This is a special report from WBUR Boston, British Jihad, Inside Out. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Like Muslim communities throughout the world, Britain's Muslim population is young. More than half are under 25. In a juice bar on Edgware Road, unofficial main street of Arab London, one young Muslim is talking about how Britain's radical Islamists offend many in their community, although few speak about it. They're sort of armchair jihadists. Farina Alam, managing editor of Q Muslim magazine, is one of those who do speak out. People like Omar Bakri know that you can tap into the you know, very, very fundamental frustrations of a young man and get him to rise up and express his frustration elsewhere on, on, on issues that are sexier, that are easier to get angry about like Iraq and Palestine. Farina Alam says that for many young British Muslims, dreaming of an Islamic state is a way of avoiding problems in their own communities. People use it as a crutch in the sense that there are so many problems that we face as a British Muslim community, locally, domestically. I'm talking about serious unemployment issues. There are serious teenage drug issues. Did you know that there are twice as many Pakistani and Bangladeshi teenage pregnancies in this country than there are white kids' pregnancies. Who's talking about things like that? And Pakistanis and Bangladeshis are Muslims. So we can talk about Iraq and Palestine and Kashmir until the end of the world, but you are ignoring everything that is under your nose. Because the Prophet said, look to 40 houses to your left, 40 houses to your right, and behind you and in front of you. If you can solve or help to solve the problems faced in your immediate society, then you think big. You may have noticed that Farina Alam is a woman. She says that offers one clue to the mystery of radical Islam's appeal to some British Muslims. I think it's a very male problem. Perhaps it's a, the Muslim male is a little bit confused now. It's a, it's a changing world. Where is his place? The women are going out, they're supporting themselves, they're quite independent. 
uh, whereas the men, uh, this sort of, you know, this idea of protecting their women, idea of uh, supporting their families, maybe these roles are sort of becoming a little mishmashed. It's not just their changing role in the home that Muslim men have to deal with. It is their interaction with a secular Western culture often at odds with an increasingly fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. For instance, Wahhabi teaching forbids instrumental music. Aki Nawaz is the leader of London-based hip-hop group Fundamental. Aki is an entrepreneur of cultural synthesis, making dance music out of live rapping and samples of Sufi chanting and Quranic singing. This has led to run-ins with leaders of the Muslim community. They perceive entertainment industry as a riddled with drugs, abuse, uh, sexism. That's their perception, that's what they've been fed. And to a certain degree it's true. You know, the Muslim parliament pulled us up years and years ago about using certain things out of the Quran on some of the records. And I said, okay, well, listen to the music. Listen to the music. And they said, actually, well, this is not the music that we're talking about. We're talking about if you have a house beat with like really trivial kind of scales on and, and the whole intention is just for people to be waving their backsides and dressed in bikinis. And suddenly there's this beautiful... Quranic verses running over the top. It's un unacceptable. That is unacceptable to me. But despite such censure, Aki Nawaz is more troubled by the criticisms from outside the Muslim community about people like Omar Bakri. I'm not a fan of his, and I'm sometimes people are suspicious of him. They say, well, he could be an MI MI5 agent because he says some really, really contentious stuff. But how come he gets away with it? Their preaching, to be honest, is actually less dangerous because you know what they're talking about. They're actually harmless. They're just great uh, evangelical kind of vibe to them and they deliver certain sound bites. But Why do you say they're harmless? Uh, because I don't think that they really inspire anybody to really do anything. Well, they've inspired a few people. I mean, that's documented. Uh, well, they don't really inspire many people to do, you know... Uh, as much as you think that they're actually doing. How many Muslims are there here? And how many Muslims are causing trouble? They're not. Aki Nawaz says if you want to understand the mystery about young British Muslims and global jihad, look at an old enemy, racism. Violent racial clashes are increasingly a part of British life. It took just a few minutes for this normally peaceful street to be transformed into something more akin to a war zone. Racial violence had erupted in yet another northern town. There must have been hundreds of them, views coming up, up Asian, uh, smashing at everything in the, in the path. Has anything like this ever happened to you? Never, never before, nothing like it. I hate to use this word, but I really think that we're just all niggers. But not all British Muslims, particularly those attracted to international jihad, are unemployed victims of racism living in socially marginalized areas.
April 30th, another night of carnage, but a new horror for Israel, a new kind of enemy, bombers from Britain, one of whom managed to flee. It was from this hostel near the beach that the two Britons set out to kill. Both men paid their bill in full, says a hostel employee. You think uh, you can look at a person and know if they're good or bad, but these people seemed really nice, like any normal tourist that comes here all the time. One of the bombers was Omar Sharif, a university student who also attended Omar Bakri's lectures. Asif Hanif, from the middle-class London suburb of Hounslow, was the other. And in what has become part of the ritual of suicide attacks, he made a videotape before going off on his mission. Muslims are being killed every day, day in, day out, every day. Terrorists, terrorists, terrorists. That's all you have. Hey, Yasser Arafat is the biggest terrorist, according to them. <laughs> SubhanAllah. <laughs> what can I say? The real terrorists are these Israelis. They're really sickos. Asif Hanif was a friend of magazine editor Farina Alam. He was a Sufi, he was a gentle boy, and he was, he was such a lovely, he was so normal. And he was not from a deprived family, he was educated. He came from a very you know, stable family, he had a very stable group of friends, very good network of friends, and he was in touch with teachers who were inspiring and, and very gentle teachers. And until today, I wonder you know, what happened to Asif? What led him to do something like this? Farina Alam is still puzzling through the mystery of why her friend changed his path. I was shocked, but it made me think, what does it take for someone to go over that edge? You know, I can only hope for the best for Asif Hanif in his afterlife. I can only hope, but it still makes me wonder, what is it that someone like him um, would make someone like him to go, go over the edge like this? And it's an answer that we really need to look at as a community. We need to have a lot of, engage in a lot of introspection. And the Muslim community is involved in introspection, at organized meetings, and in one-to-one -one conversations with each other, and people who are not. Shaven, dressed in business clothes, clearly not part of the regular circle. He wanted to know what I thought about the sheikh. We made an arrangement to meet in the more secular setting of a Starbucks near St. Paul's Cathedral. The tape recorder could be on, provided no name was used. This man, a computer technician in his late 20s, tried to explain the appeal of the radical preacher. Sheikh Omar Fakir Muhammad, he's, uh, he's almost a magician, really. Their attraction seems to be that here's a man who's extremely charismatic. He speaks with an enormous amount of passion. The way he goes out in the street, the way he openly speaks about the evil, the way he doesn't seem to compromise, the way the media seem to always attack him left, right and centre. You know, young, young people seem to think, oh, you know, this is a guy that's talking sincerity. And if you're at age around 17, 19, 20, if you don't have a job, which is most of the people don't have a job there, you know, this kind of man appeals to you. According to the young man, the sheikh continues to find new adherents because of the actions of Western leaders. These groups, they're helped by people like George Bush. He's like a gift for these radical Muslims where he says, uh, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. You know, and that, and that fits in perfectly what Sheikh Omar's been saying for the last 10 years. You know, you've got to be evil with the Christians or, or the, the non-believers or you've got to be against them. We spoke until closing time 
and just before the harried Starbucks staff threw us out, the young man said something that gave a real glimpse into the mystery of why. Why the appeal of jihad for young Muslims in Britain? You know, young Muslims are thinking, you know, how can one man like Osama bin Laden create so much havoc? It's mind-boggling. Imagine if all the Muslim countries were to unite as one, which is what they're asking for. Now, this is what the young Muslims are thinking. If all these Muslim countries were to unite onto one leader, a pan-Islamic state that America has seen its last days, which is what the young Muslims are thinking. Perhaps the prospect of being on the winning side is the reason some young British Muslims acknowledge Islam as a force in their lives deserving higher loyalty than their country and why a few are ready to take arms against British soldiers or plot to murder their neighbors on the London Underground. But it is only one part of the mystery's solution. Another part lies in the religion of Islam itself, according to magazine editor Farina Alam. I think we have lost the concept of compassion and mercy. There's a saying that the Prophet was sent as a mercy to the world, but we've turned him into a tyrant. All over the world, the editor points out, Islam is going through violent change. It is a war within Islam. I think there's a certain brand of Islam that has manifested itself from within us, and we need to fight that. That Islam doesn't have to be the Islam of Osama bin Laden. And I can say it shamelessly, I can say it very proudly, that I'm willing to fight against my own people, because the Quran says, fight for justice even if it's against your own mother. We need to pick up the courage to do that and I think it does take courage especially if you feel you live in a world that is hostile to you. As a Muslim I think it takes courage. But in Britain there's not yet a critical mass of people within the Muslim community to wage that battle. Despair is not too emotive a word to describe the feelings of many in the community. Aki Nawaz is convinced mass violence against Muslims is just one incident away. You know, at some point, for Muslims right now, we can see it on the wall, you're going to have to throw your book into one camp or the other, and people will throw their book into uh, Hamza and Bakri's camp, mm -hmm. because it's like a way out of, of all this madness. It's sad, yeah. but I'm looking for the man with hope. Where is he? There is no single way to describe the Muslim community in Britain. It is as diverse in its opinions as any other segment of the British population. There are generational differences, gender differences, doctrinal differences, and plain old liberal versus conservative differences of opinion. One solution to the mystery of why global jihad has found a narrow but secure perch in Britain may be this. For people who feel lost in a complex world, the simple message of a demagogue like Omar Bakri will always have an appeal. Sheikh Omar seems to know this, and he is very confident that his message is reaching more and more people willing to wage jihad against the U.S. and its Western allies. USA, it is really challenged by people who believe in suicide bombing, by people who believe to smile in the face of death and to blow themselves with the enemy to enter paradise. So they are facing big problem. They're facing people themselves, they are nuclear bomb. Themselves, they are safe weapon of mass destruction by their own bodies. Look to them in September 11, the Magnificent 19 terrorists, if you like to call them terrorists, because terrorism for the Wahhabis, it is praise term, because that's part of their own culture to terrorize the enemy, because terrorism can be pro-life. 
And that is the form of terrorism the Mujahideen are involved in USA trapped. British Jihad Inside Out was written and reported by Michael Goldfarb. The technical director and studio producer was George Hicks. The program was edited by Anna Benstead. To view pictures and read a reporter's notebook, please visit our website, www.insideout.org. Web producers are Gavin McCarthy and Will Thompson. The executive producer of Inside Out Documentaries is Anna Benstead.